Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. September 17, 1862 was the bloodiest day in the Civil War, indeed in all of American military history, and the bloodiest part of that battlefield, one that changed hands time and again as the armies surged back and forth, was Miller's Cornfield. We'll talk about that famous piece of land and the soldiers who fought in and around it with David A. Welker, author of The Cornfield, Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. After one week in the building, the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, I'm back broadcasting from home tonight, not because they've closed the university or anything drastic like that, but uh, just the way the schedule has worked out this week. It's, it's the place to be this evening, the beautiful fall evening in September of 2021, uh, But even though I am not on campus, uh, that does not change the policy that I'm also not speaking for the campus, not for ECU, not representing them, nor nor will my guest represent anyone but himself, as we always do here. The university is still open. We are still teaching classes face-to-face in this second full pandemic academic year uh, of 2021. The University seems much better prepared this year than it was last summer. Uh, last fall, we have a, an online dashboard with current statistics showing how things are going in terms of testing and uh, uh, vaccinations and other statistics. Uh, and generally, the numbers are 
holding steady or uh, improving slightly across the board. So uh, knocking on wood, we hope we can continue to teach in person. This return to campus has been, uh, I'll say invigorating. I've certainly enjoyed being back in the classroom and I have the sense the students really are as well. I notice that at the beginning of every academic year, people are, are gung-ho for a while. They come to class on time. They've done all their reading. And then that starts to drift away a little bit. But so far, uh, the attendance has been really strong. The preparation for class has been really strong. Uh, the students seem to appreciate the opportunity to be doing this. You realize what you miss when you spend a year just talking to your professor through a screen, which is is, is not a satisfactory substitute. Uh, just as talking with you through uh, uh, through the computer screen here is uh, is fine. I enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. I appreciate you listening. It would be better if we could talk face-to-face, and in some cases we can. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours offers opportunities uh, for you to see the uh, see battlefield sites. The next one will be this October. It's already sold out. Uh, but we'll do one again in the spring, and I hope you can join me when we do that. I'll keep you informed of it. Uh, I mentioned the scores on the, the dashboard, uh, the COVID dashboard, were looking relatively positive in the sense they were negative. Uh, there's a word rabbit hole to go down. Uh, in contrast, the numbers on the football scoreboard this past weekend, not so good. The men should have won their game on Saturday against South Carolina. And the women lost their soccer match on Sunday that they should have won. The coach said it was not a good performance. So we're not going to talk sports tonight. Uh, except I will point out, I went to the game, the football game, the men's football game on Saturday. First time in years, wanted to show support for the attempt to return close to normalcy. And the game was broadcast on one the ESPN 11 or one of their many, many channels. And man, there are a lot of commercial breaks during American football. Uh, at home, I don't notice so much. If I'm watching a game, I have my book for Civil War talk radio open next to me. And when they go to commercial, I hit the mute button, read a few pages, take some notes, and then the game starts again. But when you're at the game, you can't do that. Uh, can't really bring the book in. You can't look at your phone because the sun's too bright and the music is deafeningly loud. Uh, but you can see the little timer held out on the field showing three minutes till we start again. Are you kidding me? Three more minutes of this? Uh, and it's again and again and again. It's really an absurd way to conduct a sport, if you ask me. Uh, but you're not asking me that. You are asking me instead, who's on the show next week? And the answer to that is Gil Hahn, author of Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the American Civil War. The last week of September, we'll have John David Smith, uh, the co-editor of a book of essays called The Long Civil War. New Explorations in America's Enduring Conflict. We'll hear what's happening at the cutting edge of scholarship. And in October, we'll have uh, some very interesting guests as well. Uh, Christopher Moore will be writing about uh, and talking with us about J. William Jones, uh, who he calls the Apostle of a Lost Cause. And we'll find out what that means. On the 13th, I'll be away leading a history tour, but I'll be back on October 20th with you and with Ronald White and his book on the private Lincoln. And we'll finish up the month with a return to the show of uh, an old friend, David Maury, 
his uh, current work we'll discuss is about Cincinnati in the Civil War. The same Cincinnati that is leaving the American Athletic Conference to go join a bigger one, uh, the Big 12, who lost their two big teams. Uh, and ECU is thus left behind in the AAC. It's a constant round robin, uh, but I said I wouldn't talk college sports. Instead, uh, I'll remind you, you can find out what's going on by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page. Mark Daphne is in charge of keeping us up to date there, who's going to be on the show. And you can buy books there by clicking on the Amazon uh, symbol, and you can also donate to the show. Your donations are always welcome and will be used for important things like, uh, uh, not football tickets, I already bought those, uh, but but something important. Uh, Not something tax deductible, you already know that. Tonight's show is sponsored by Civil War Trails. Uh, Civil War Trails is the world's largest open-air museum, offering 1,350 sites across six states. If you are inspired by what you hear tonight about the Battle of Antietam, the Civil War Trails 1862 Antietam Campaign Trail allows you to follow Lee's invasion of Maryland turn by turn with over two dozen stops along the way. You can request a brochure at civilwartrails.org on the internet. So follow Civil War Trails, create some history of your own. And that's the paid commercial message. I add my personal endorsement. Last week I pointed out Antietam is a battle you can see a lot of from one spot, from the visitor center, not like the wilderness that we talked about last week. Uh, But what you can see from one spot, Antietam, is the whole campaign to South Mountain, to Harper's Ferry. For that, you really do want the Civil War Trails brochure. And I know anytime I'm driving anywhere in that neighborhood or anywhere in Virginia, Maryland, eastern North Carolina, if I see a Civil War Trails marker sign by the side of the road, I pull off and check it out, and I'm never disappointed. Uh, so, Civil War Trails, excellent organization. Tonight's guest has written about the Battle of Antietam, David A. Welker. His book is called The Cornfield, Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. David, are you there? I am, Jerry. Thank you. Thanks for having well, me. Oh, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. So, um, you're uh, usually, uh, I would say usually, often we have people on the show that uh, are, are professors uh, or uh, people who work at battlefields. I'm always curious what people do when they're not talking to me on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, uh, well, what's your day job? So uh, my day job is that I am a historian with the federal government. Uh, I've been with the same uh, organization for uh, 37 years and uh, worked most of that as uh, as a military analyst uh, looking at various military campaigns and uh, military forces around the world and analyzing those for uh, for federal policymakers so th- that's what I do and that but now I'm uh, I've moved on and I'm a historian for our, our agency so um, uh, a chance to bring both of my loves together well, that is wonderful, and it's great to see how how history affects the real world. How it's not just, you know, we all here all enjoy it, we study it, we we benefit from it and learn from it. But uh, the idea that it lacks any real world application, anyone who studied it knows that's not true. But you're 
career shows that's obviously an important part of, of yeah. public policy. In fact, I created a staff ride program to use Civil War battlefields to teach military analysis to our um, uh, our analysts uh, and those who work on military accounts or military-related issues so that they could see a battle unfold and learn how to um, use the U.S. Army's principles of war to understand and to evaluate a, a fast-moving uh, battle. So I take groups out to Antietam, Manassas, uh, Gettysburg, and other places to, to teach those sessions to them. Well, that that is a, a great tradition in American military education. We've had uh, people who've led staff rides on the show in the past, and it's uh, it really is a great way to learn about uh, about principles of war by seeing how they're implemented during the the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Is that where you got the idea to write about the the cornfield? It it is in part. You know, I always think that there are uh, there are two drivers behind any. Any published book, or at least I, I find there are, there's, there's a practical driver, and in this case, the practical driver was wanting to understand how the Battle of Antietam unfolded in as much detail as possible. And as I began digging to do that work many years ago, um, I was not satisfied with what was available about the cornfield. There was a lot about the sunken road or Bloody Lane. There was a lot about Burnside Bridge or some of the, the other actions, uh, the West Woods. But the cornfield in particular just seemed this disjointed mess. And a lot of the standard books on Antietam had either glossed over or oversimplified the the cornfield action. And I thought, well, how, you know, why is that so? And I started doing my own research. And, and you know, the more I did that, the more it led toward a book. But the other part of that is the intellectual driver, the the sort of big question that you want to answer, the why question. And the more I got into the the what uh, of Antietam, what was the fighting like, where did the actions begin, and where did the troops move to create this battle, that drove me to, to dig deeper into the why. Why? was the cost of the fighting in the cornfield so high? Why had nobody really satisfactorily, uh, at least in my view, delved into understanding this this action? Um, and you know why was Miller's cornfield so important that it became the cornfield as if there were no other? Uh, there are other cornfields that are fought in in the Civil War, um, and including in Antietam. But mm-hmm. but Miller's cornfield becomes the cornfield, and I, uh, the more I dug into this, the more I really wanted to know why did that happen. So the, uh, I mean, as you say, there are other cornfields. There are wheat fields. There are peach orchards that all become known by. Uh, by one name, but this one has not really been looked at in the, the same kind of detail uh, up to this point. The book, however, is not just about the cornfield. That, that uh, When I first came across it and it was presented to me as, here's something you might do on the show, my immediate thought is, are we really going to talk 45 minutes about just the cornfield? And... Uh, <laughs> 
I, I'm happy to say I, I enjoyed reading the book. It's not just about the cornfield. It, it puts it in context. And indeed, the, the you start out discussing the campaign uh, uh, in some detail. What, why was it necessary to, to, to take us all the way back to the beginning of the campaign to make this work? Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that I tried very much to do. So I'm glad to hear that you um, you found that helpful. Um, mm-hmm. I... I I'm often critical of books that look at a battle as if it were a chess match. Mm. And it's all about moving here and firing and moving there and, and attacking and retreating. And there's a place for books that, that are sort of nuts and bolts. But to me, it's important to understand the context of these actions because they're not being fought as as a chess match or as something that they didn't have anything else to do that day. So, well, let's have a battle. Uh, They're doing that to achieve something. And so to understand whether any battle or an action within a battle was successful, uh, you need to understand the context of what did the two nations or the two sides fighting it want to achieve? What did the generals want to achieve uh, how successful were they in, in in meeting those goals? And so that's why I think, you know, we needed to start with the campaign. What was, uh, what did Davis and Lincoln mm-hmm. want to achieve? And how did Lee and McClellan see this action as fitting into that? I, I think that that works well here that you, you give us that story. You, so it presents both some political background, not overwhelming, uh, and then also the the strategic and operational background that gets us to the actual battlefield. Uh, we'll get to the actual battlefield after we take a short break. We're talking tonight with David A. Welker, author of The Cornfield, Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David A. Welker, author of The Cornfield, Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. Uh, If you're listening to this and not driving your car and can actually uh, get up out of a sitting position, this would be a good time to go uh, grab a map or two of the Battle of Antietam. If you've got this book, which you should, uh, you can use the maps in there. If not, you've probably got Stephen Sears uh, on your shelf, uh, Landscape Turned Red, or James McPherson's book, or maybe you have Old Unreliable, The West Point Atlas of American Wars. You can open that. Uh, but get a map of Antietam, and then you'll know about the places we're talking about. In very broad terms, the two battle lines are, are formed north uh, on a north-south axis, and the cornfield is at the north end of the battlefield. Uh, but Dave, tell us more uh, about the, the about Miller's cornfield, the Miller farm. Uh, what what kind of terrain are we talking about? Yeah, it it's yeah, and the Miller farm itself is is central to this action. It's a um, David and Margaret Miller bought this farm, uh, or actually his, David's father bought it, uh, and uh, they had married in 1846. They um, had a, um, uh, a thriving small farm. There's uh, some barns. Uh, it's straddled by the Hagerstown Pike, although most of the, uh, the tilled land was behind it, and really three behind the house, and really three... Uh, fields, a, a plowed field in the the north, um, a fallow or grassy field uh, to its south, then the cornfield itself, and then another grassy field, a triangular shaped field that ran down toward the uh, toward the Smoketown Road, and the cornfield because it was corn was a fenced field. And that fence, even though it was uh, just a, a Virginia worm fence, became an obstacle, just as as the corn did, um, to the the men who would be marching through it. But the field itself is it's a relatively modest field, 24 acres, 500 yards uh, long by 250 yards wide. Um, it, it's it's what it's surrounded by that makes the cornfield so important because it's in a box of woods. So to the north is the north woods, the east, the east woods, and shockingly to the west, the west woods across the Hagerstown Pike. And it's into that box that General Hooker is going to launch his opening attacks uh, on the, at dawn on 17 September 1862. And the, the terrain itself is is rolling. If you were to stand there today and look at it, uh, even if it's planted in corn, you would say, well, it, it's not really, uh, you know, it's not very mountainous, particularly compared to the Battle of South Mountain fought, you know, three days earlier. Uh, it, it's nothing like that. This is a walk in the park and you can see everything. And you can see much farther than uh, the troops could at South Mountain. And yet, 
um, those rolling hills, if you walk the Cornfield Trail today from the North Woods to uh, Cornfield Avenue, where the Confederate salient was set up by Jackson, uh, you can appreciate just how uh, imposing this seemingly benign terrain becomes. You can lose yourself. If you look back at um, the Pennsylvania monuments, which you can only see now in the winter because the North Woods is beginning to grow back, uh, thanks to the Park Service. Um, when you start walking, that monument, which is is easily you know, 15 feet tall, simply disappears just in the terrain. And so there was that added to the confusion, uh, as as did those woodlots. So the corn was high at the time of the battle. Yes, yeah, it was. It was September. It was uh, you know the most dreaded time of a farm boy's uh, year, uh, harvest time, and uh, David Miller had not gotten around to harvesting his corn yet. So when the troops uh, arrived there, it was a thick cornfield. Now, I should add that in the 19th century, corn uh, cultivation was different than it is today. Today, with the high-yield farming uh, techniques and fertilizers, we have cornfields are just packed uh, you know, as tight as they can be. In the 19th century, they had to space the corn out. So each corn plant was planted on a little mound in a row that made it look much more like a a checkerboard. And what that meant for the troops going into it is they could go forward relatively easily. Men could pick a line and there would be order moving north or south. But moving diagonally was was still tricky. And mm-hmm. unlike today when you don't need those mounds, in, at the Battle of Antietam, there were those mounds. And that simply made the organization of the troops marching through it that much more difficult to maintain. Now, you said that this is where uh, the, the uh, federal troops of General Hooker started the battle on the 17th. They, they were marching from north to south. Mm-hmm. at the, the left end of the Confederate line. Uh, this is part of McClellan's plan. What was McClellan's plan for this battle? That That's a great question, and it's, a, it's still a matter of debate. And I wrestled mm-hmm. with this for quite a while when I started doing my research because I came to it, you know, with the sort of maybe uh, educated layman's understanding of, of this battle which was that there's a Union attack on the right and then an attack in the center and then an attack from the Union left and it moves from north to south, which is the again, that conventional understanding. But the more I researched it, the more it was apparent that that wasn't what McClellan had planned. It may be what appeared to have occurred, but what he really wanted to do was a much more common sense uh, West Point centric plan, which was a three pronged attack. The first opening attack would be from the Union right against the Confederate left, and that's what was uh, under the command of General Hooker. Then, when that attack was either successful or well underway, uh, McClellan would launch an attack on the opposite flank by Ambrose Birdside's Ninth Corps. Uh, And, of course, we all know how that actually turned out. But then once that 
attack, both attacks on the flanks were underway. And Lee had presumably thinned his center to defend his flanks. At that point, McClellan would unleash the Fifth Corps, commanded by Fitz John Porter, his, his confidant and friend, as well as uh, containing the, uh, the U.S. regulars under George Sykes, the again, from the West Point perspective, the most uh, dependable and well-trained troops, along with Pleasanton's cavalry. And so that, that would be the final attack that would strike Lee's weakened center and break the line. Now, the goal here was, uh, I think, to use the terrain to McClellan's advantage. He knew the Potomac River was behind Lee. And Lee, when the battle started, had really three options to escape if things went badly. He could go north to Hagerstown. He could go south to Harper's Ferry, which Jackson had just taken. Or he could go due west uh, to Shepherdstown. And by launching those flanking attacks, McClellan was very effectively planning to cut two of the three escape routes, leaving Lee only that one route back to Shepherdstown, which was several miles away, which would trap the Confederate wagon train, all of its ammunition or much of it, most of its artillery uh, on that side of the Potomac to be taken by McClellan. So it, it was, uh, I think, a pretty good plan. It was something that all um, the generals would understand had he actually shared that with them. Now, that's one of the many criticisms that, that emerges in your writing of McClellan. Uh, after we start with the, the, your, your suggestion that he made a, a reasonable, if not uh, uh, an effective plan, uh, he doesn't tell all his generals. He does tell Hooker. Uh, Hooker right. seems to know what the plan is, and right. he goes in first, uh, and that means he's going to march through uh, Miller's Farm, including the cornfield. Uh, how did, how does that work out? Well, and again, McClellan deserves a lot of credit for his planning. There are a lot of things George McClellan does poorly, but planning and organizing are his two strengths, and they are um, they are very much evident here. Um, he tells Hooker, who he knows is going to have the toughest part of this three-pronged attack. The opening attack is um, the one that Lee will be able to throw the, the most forces against. Um, we don't know how many troops uh, McClellan believed that Lee had. Uh, he probably overestimated his size, uh, but he certainly uh, didn't think that he was outnumbered, as were some claims later on. But um, the the plan was for Hooker to launch his opening attack. Uh, he was given his his own first corps uh, and given command of it to to organize and uh, and implement that attack as he saw fit. Later in the evening, on the sixteenth. Uh, Hooker realized how difficult this was. He rode back and asked for reinforcements. And at that point, uh, McClellan dispatched uh, the uh, the 12th Corps under uh, General Mansfield to support him. So Hooker's got these two corps, and he is, uh, you know, rides the lines that night. He looks at the ground, and he evaluates, how, how can I plan this 
attack against a force that I don't know its location, I don't know its size, and I, I you know, don't know what what position they'll be in in the morning, what changes they may make overnight, and I have to launch this at dawn uh, to buy as much time as possible for this big, ambitious plan to come off. So, Hooker plans, um, again, I, I think a um, an effective uh, scheme to strike Lee's, um, Lee's left of center. He's not going to try and turn the flank. He doesn't know where it is. He doesn't have the cavalry to find that. He doesn't have the time to find it. Uh, so he's going to ignore where the line is, and he's going to uh, send his forces to one chosen point on the line and, and punch a hole in that line. And he chooses, as his objective, the Dunker Church. And again, this shows Joe Hooker knows what he's doing as well, because the Dunker Church, small white church that it is, it stands out as an obvious landmark. So every commander, uh, no matter how confused the battle will be, can simply look around and find their objective. Uh, so that's the plan. And he's going to send two of his three divisions forward um, across Miller's farm headed toward the Dunker Church. Uh, Doubleday's division on his right is going to move directly south the Hagerstown on the Hagerstown Pike uh, toward the Dunker Church. Meanwhile, Ricketts' division will march diagonally across the cornfield, and the two divisions will then presumably meet at the Dunker Church. Now, Jackson responds, I, I think, you know, this is vintage Jackson. Uh, he's on the defense because this is what Lee has chosen. Lee has decided from the start to let the Federals bang themselves against this high ground that we hold with the woods providing cover for our position. Uh, and, you know, we'll take advantage of the terrain where we can. He puts D.H. Hill's division out in the sunken road, well out of the the main, well ahead of the main Confederate line. But, you know, this is, uh, he's taking advantage of the gifts that the terrain has given him. Jackson, similarly, sees where the Federals are forming. They skirmished in the East Woods the night before, and he could see troops pouring into the North Woods. And so he creates a salient. He puts essentially two brigades of Lawton's division out into that um, the, the, the cornfield, what today is Cornfield Road, the, a Park Service road that was not there at the time, and has them facing north, perpendicular to the conf main Confederate line. So wherever Hooker attacks, um, he's likely to attack into uh, a vice. Um, so it's very effective, and it's and, and Hooker obliges Jackson by marching right into the front of that. Um, so he goes into the Hooker's troops go into the cornfield. Uh, they they encounter the rebels. They on their first pass, they, they actually uh, you point out they can sort of go right through it. They they make a great deal of progress, but that's as far as they're they're going to get in some cases uh, through most of the day. The uh, the Confederates counterattack, and that really sets the motif for the whole story. Union advances goes through, uh, into or through the cornfield, Confederates launch a counterattack, uh, 
they push the the federal troops out. Now they're in the cornfield or or beyond it, and then they get pushed back. And this happens uh, repeatedly. Yeah, uh, eight times. The, yeah, the it, which is changes hands eight eight times in the course of about two and a half hours. So the it would be. It would be good to describe each of these in detail, uh, but we do not have the, the uh, appropriate <laughs> hours to do that. Uh, yeah. But there are there are, but it, it's fascinating to read because each one is different. There there are highlights and lowlights. Um, uh, the the Union at one point would succeed, but uh, one of the brigade commanders, General Christian, uh, essentially has a breakdown. It looks That's like right. uh, and simply. Yeah loses his, his self-possession and won't advance his troops and finally wanders off. Yeah. Uh, you don't see that in too many Civil War battles of, of a brigade commander simply uh, literally having a mental breakdown on the field of battle, but yeah. we see it here. Uh, there are lots of vignettes. The first Texas, uh, in, in a, a later counterattack, uh, suffers, I, I think you'd say it's the highest percentage casualties of any yeah. regiment. That's right, 82.6% casualties, 45 killed, 145 wounded of uh, 226 engaged in the first Texas, the largest, highest number of Confederate casualties in any for any regiment throughout the entire war. It, it's just astonishing that, that these people stand up to it. It's also a style of war that we, we see here and, and continue to see it into 1863, but the idea of standing up in the open line facing line and shooting at each other will of course go away by the time we get to the overland campaign uh two years later but but here they're still doing it and it's it's just brutal right uh, we're, I, fact, we're going to take a short break actually and come back and and discuss uh more of the consequences of the cornfields occupation by both sides we're talking tonight with david a welker he's the author of the cornfield antietam's bloody turning point I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David A. Welker, author of The Cornfield, Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. Uh, David, we've been talking about the, the back-and-forth nature of the fighting here, and uh, I don't think we need a spoiler alert. I'm, I'll go out on a limb and say 100% of our listeners know the outcome of the Battle of Antietam. <laughs> uh, so McClellan's plan ultimately doesn't work, one of the things though, that struck me reading your book is the not only the enormous carnage among the soldiers, the, the rank and file in the cornfield, but the, uh, the, the company officers, the field officers, the regimental commanders, uh, brigade commanders, and even uh, on the Union side, Hooker himself uh, is, is given, uh, you said, command of 12th Corps as well, or reinforcements from 12th Corps. Uh, but the commander of the 12th Corps, Joseph Mansfield, is mortally wounded in the battle, and Hooker is wounded during the battle. Even the very highest officers uh, are close enough to the fighting that they will become casualties or, or may become casualties. Is that what undoes the plan for the Union, this high officer loss rate? I, I think it's a little of both. I, I think um, there were a lot uh, there was a lot of confusion and you know they say that no plan survives first contact in any battle and antietam is is certainly a, a textbook case of that mcclellan's plan uh, was was very rigid and he unlike lee and i i point out in the book that you know Lee is an iterative thinker. He is a, a man who can look at an unfolding situation that looks like a disaster and find a glimmer of hope, uh, which is why they're fighting in Antietam at all, because he found a glimmer of hope in Jackson's taking Harper's Ferry. Um, McClellan, on the other hand, is a, a linear thinker, I argue, and and you know he comes up with a good plan. It's, it's uh, a well-thought-out plan and implemented thoroughly, but... Uh, battles require flexibility and uh, agility, and George McClellan is not the man to to do that. So, uh, you know, he sticks to that plan, and he's waiting for that first phase to be successful because it's the key phase. Hooker needs to get up on the Dunker Church Ridge, break Lee's line on the, the left, uh, have it falling back, and most importantly, take that position so he can put artillery up there to support the drive uh, by the Fifth Corps, that that final uh, third phase of, of his battle plan, uh, because they they get stuck. The the Federals Hooker, Mansfield, Williams, um, Green later on, and of course Sumner when he takes over on the the um, the Federal right, they get stuck fighting for these intermediate objectives. Uh, so Hooker spends really the two core he's got uh, to simply take control of the cornfield. Mm-hmm. He he never gets to fight for the Dunker Church Ridge. He's wounded, as you pointed out. So it's it's that Jackson in the defense kept creating obstacles, and 
making Hooker fight for intermediate objectives he may not have understood he was fighting for. First the cornfield, then the East Woods, pushing them even farther back. And, and mm-hmm. then finally Green's division, uh, once Hooker realizes what's happened, he adapts and changes his plan. So instead of sending uh, Williams' division of the 12th Corps over the same ground to duplicate what his first corps had been unable to do, he changes and works those two divisions together. Williams is sort of a blocking force in the cornfield over that ground they've just been fighting over facing south. And then having Green swing in a a massive left wheel uh, around like a barn door that turns the the end, the right of Jackson's uh, salient position along modern cornfield avenue and then pushes it back. It's that adaptation that changes things, and you know, perhaps had Joe Hooker not been uh, wounded and driven from the fight, maybe things would have been different. But um, then it changes again, and you know, and when Sumner comes on, and he has no clue. Uh, all he knows is he doesn't know uh, McClellan's plan, um, and so he kind of makes it up as he goes along. Well, he throws uh, Cedric's division into the West Woods in a famous uh, disastrous attack. Uh, you point out they, they go in in a line of uh, brigades, three brigades each in its own line, which I was surprised you describe it as a flexible formation. I've always thought of it as a uh, an inflexible and awkward formation. What what yeah. was flexible about it? So it it's a column of brigades, which means mm-hmm. that that the three brigades are marching one in front of another. And it's a compact formation that lacks uh, punch, but what it has is mobility. So the only brigade that can really engage is the first brigade in line. The other two are simply following it across the cornfield and uh, that open ground where the the Philadelphia Brigade Monument is today uh, at, at the West Woods. Once they engaged, once that front line stopped, uh, however, wherever they hit the the toughest opposition, mm-hmm. then Sumner has a choice. He can either deploy those second two brigades on both on the left, both on the right, or one on each side. So it allows him to, once he's engaged in battle, to uh, he has to quickly evaluate what he's dealing with and figure out where is the vulnerability, where I want to put the most uh, mass of my troops and firepower to to make a difference. Uh, so, so, so he can extend the line left or right, but, but what he can't do is turn to face left or right, where and that's where the attack's going to come from. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and where Sumner, I think, f- falls apart in that action is he gets into the woods and he is essentially duplicating John Sedgwick's division commander role. He's not acting as corps commander. He is busy making sure that the various brigades in Sedgwick's division are in in place. Um, Perhaps had his second division, Franklin, been up uh, and positioned and maybe Sumner would have acted like a corps commander instead, he is duplicating John Sedgwick's role, and that means that he never deploys those troops. They they hit the obstacle of uh, 
um, of Early's brigade and, and others that are remaining of Jackson's very, very thin and a, a really about to crack line. And instead of deploying them, they simply stand there. Uh, Dana and Howard's brigades just stand there waiting to be told what to do because Sedgwick is uh, is busy, but Sumner, who should have been deploying them or telling Sedgwick to deploy them, is busy riding the line you know, evaluating the, the position. So they stand there, and it's into that open flank that uh, McClaw's Confederate division attacks, as you said. So, um, the I'm getting a signal that my battery is running down here, so I'm going <laughs> to be plugging in as we talk. Okay. Um, don't anyone go away. We'll take a moment. <laughs> the um, As I was reading about this, you also described that McClellan is – uh, well, where is McClellan all this time? So throughout this this the morning, McClellan is at his headquarters. Now, there are various descriptions of McClellan being in his uh, in his uh, Pry House headquarters or forward headquarters, where he's observing the battle and and he's unreachable. And that that's partly because Edward Sumner is spending the morning there, waiting to be told what to do, and he's getting frustrated. Uh, so he. Uh, uh, he's at his headquarters. He's almost certainly not, you know, sleeping or having breakfast, as is sometimes alleged. He's probably isolating himself and and having aides bring information in um, so that he isn't being dragged into this fight. Uh, he, he sees his job as coordinating those three attacks. And he, if that was the case, he's right. Because he's the only one who can, um, from that position, that elevated position, in the more or less the center uh, rear of, of the battle, uh, manage this relatively large action. You know, compared to Gettysburg, it seems very tight and compact. But in 1862, this was a pretty big battle and a lot of terrain that he could not personally see. So McClellan's being in the, the rear and the center He's at that, uh, you know, the peak of that inverted pyramid. If the, the base of the pyramid is where the, the men are firing uh, at the enemy from, he's standing at the, the top of that pyramid, managing, moving all those troops. Um, it, it reminded me of that, that short story by Ed, Ernest Swinton, uh, uh, written in the 19th century about a general who plans a big battle. Uh, and on the day of the battle, he goes fishing. <laughs> and the author's point is that's the way to do it, that anything he says that day will just mess up the plan. He's done He's done his job. Now it's yep. up to the subordinates to execute. Yep. And any inter- anything he does will just interfere and make it worse. Yep. And, and that's course, exactly we- how McClellan liked to run. If you look at how he ran his operations on the peninsula, mm-hmm. he saw his role as senior commander as setting the, the strategic objectives for – his army, and then choosing a commander who could effectively lead the the tactical planning and fighting. And he does that very much here, um, chooses Hooker, chooses Burnside, and Porter. And they're the ones who are going to implement those actions. He can't be everywhere at once. And now, so he never actually sees the cornfield, as far as I can tell. Uh, uh, it, late in the in the or early in the the afternoon, when the fighting there is is long over, McClellan does ride into the cornfield. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. He could not see it during the time that all the fighting was going on. That right. That was obscured by terrain. So he could see smoke, he could hear the sound of fighting, but he couldn't see any anything that was happening. So he had no idea how badly the cornfield was going, really until he gets a message from um, from the front, um, a, uh, a dispatch from Sumner, and some aides return telling him how bad things are going. That's the first time he realizes uh, how badly things have gone in his opening phase of the battle on, on the Union right. Uh, and that probably, we don't know why, but it probably prompts him to ride to the right. Uh, and that's when he resolves the dispute between Sumner and, uh, uh, and General Franklin. So, it, 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 most, m- many analysts of this battle would say that you know, it's McClellan's fault that the, the United States forces couldn't win with the overwhelming uh, numerical support, the superiority they bring to the field. It seems like this book argues that the plan wasn't necessarily faulty. Uh, it, it wasn't the plan as much as the execution of it. That's right. Uh, that if McCollin had just well, – well, what's the minimum that would have had to be different for this to work? So it's it's a bit ironic in a way. I, I spent much of the research uh, being critical of McClellan for not mm-hmm. being – that iterative thinker that Lee was and sticking so rigidly to his plan. And finally, when I got to evaluating what really went wrong, why did this plan fall apart? It occurred to me that the moment he should have stuck with the plan, that's when he changed it. Mm. If he had let Porter and the Fifth Corps and the U.S. regulars and, and the cavalry attack the weakened center late in the day, it almost certainly would have broken Lee's line in two. And yes, darkness was coming. And so he was losing operational time. And I, I think he um, may have leaned too heavily on that. But I argue if McClellan, instead of abandoning the plan and hoping that somehow uh, Burnside could make something work in the second phase and canceling that final attack by the regulars and the Fifth Corps, uh, that if he just let that happen, he might well have won. And then we would have had the spectacle of Pleasanton's cavalry with sabers drawn launching a Napoleonic cavalry charge. That's right. Um, and that's exactly what he wanted. He's uh, McClellan is often criticized for using the, the cavalry as his Praetorian guard. Mm-hmm. But that misunderstands what McClellan, I think, what McClellan was trying to do here. So um, we're, we're near the end of our time. I, I really enjoyed this book. It It does... We've talked a lot about McClellan and the leadership. I think the analysis there is, is exceptionally interesting. There's a lot of tactical detail as well for listeners who like to get into the weeds, or in this case, into the corn plants. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of that too, uh, so you'll enjoy that. Uh, do you have another project uh, coming up down the road? Yeah, so I'm uh, actually researching uh, the uh, the Invalid Corps. Uh, no history has ever been written of the uh, the Invalid Corps, um, the Union Invalid Corps, which which made a significant contribution to the war effort that is uh, underappreciated, and uh, uh, they did an awful lot of things that no one knows about. So I want to bring that out, as well as the Confederate Invalid Corps, and very few people even know there was a Confederate Invalid Corps. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> absolutely not. That that is that would be news. Well, those will be that, that will be interesting to read. I will certainly look forward to that. Uh, I enjoyed reading and learning about this place, which I've visited many times, and and uh, you know thought I knew something about, but uh, was put in the shade by reading David A. Welker's book, The Cornfield, Ameri- Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, Dave, thanks for being on the show, and, and good luck with the next project. Well, thank you for having me, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 